Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi. You know, I did another podcast earlier today, but I have some time tonight because colleges, uh, lectures are finished. And uh, I was just speaking, you know, every day I do my show thing. I speak about the parish a little bit to people in my show in the Zoom, and it stimulated me to thinking I, uh, I'll i try to do the Parsha today if, if, if I can. As I said, I'll, I'll try to do uh, the Parsha today if I can. Today's uh, podcast is uh, being sponsored by Dax, by Nissen Dax and family. Uh, and that's the oldest. Uh, the Dax family's in Baltimore. The kids are living in different places. And this one, Nissen is living in Philly. And uh, he said it's in honor of his Father's father, Fall Arya Yosef ben Rafal Aryeleib ben Yosef Avram. I'm sorry about that. Rafal Aryeleib ben Yosef Avram. He says Yartsev was last week on 14 Kislev. And uh, here's the craziest part. He wrote to me, he said, his father, let's put it this way, they came from Europe, you know, to this country long ago. And I mean, long ago. And everybody's from all their descendants, he said, rose from. I never heard of that. So that's quite a uh, that's an unusual story. Uh, so I appreciate the sponsorships as always. And now I'd like to share an idea or two on the parsha over here. This week's Hanukkah is coming up with a lot of different ideas. My head's rolling with different things. So I'd rather uh, put this out of the way if I can. Parsha Yeshev is, of course, uh, understood at 100 levels, including the literary level. It's a literary, a brilliant piece of writing. Even the, you shouldn't say the Torah is literary, but it, that's part of it. It's not true. The Torah has 70 uh, uh, features, and really, yes, expression means a lot more than 70. And one is the literary one. And uh, when we come to this week's Parsha, so you uh, have the problem of the crime of the brothers, right, because they tried to kill him. The crime of the brothers. And the misconduct of the brothers. Now, a lot of from fortune really twist in and out to try to justify it. It's the crime of the brothers. Uh, you know, it's a very famous story in Shiva world. Uh, I'm sure I mentioned it. Volusion, that uh, way back in the 1850s, I think it was, there was one of these fights that you had in Yeshiva between two, who should be Rosh Yeshiva. This is part of Litvish world. You have these fights in Yeshiva, who should be Rosh Yeshiva. And two teams form and they fight each other and all the rest of it. We had it recently in, in, in Panovich. It happens. And the question was, Nitziv or the base of Levi? Um, I bet you've heard that. Now, uh, it was a bitter fight, and the yeshiva could fall apart because machlekes can do it. Somebody once told me that Rav Shach said that he said I never heard of yeshiva going under because of money, but I have heard yeshiva going under because of machlekes. It's a very smart thing to say. Now, uh, the story is that. The two sides were so bitter. On the other hand, there were two big men, the Nitziv and the Beis Alevi, and so they brought in an arbitration court to come in and sort of like settle it. And the famous story is, they made a, a committee of three, as I recall, 
One was Yitzhak Han Inspector. He was young at that time. He was rubbing the Vardik before Kovna. That's one of the ways he became famous by being part of this. Another one was the Nachlis David, David of Minsk, who is, uh, I guess, from the Talmud Muvak of the Yeshiva, get it? No, but he was uh, Talmud Muvak of uh, Rechaim of Elozhener. The fight in Yeshiva happened after Rechaim's son died, Rebitzel of Elozhener, and then it was a, a battle who should take over, you know, from him. And uh, so that's two people. And the third one was the Maggid of Vilna, if I remember correctly, or Zave, who's supposed to be a fantastic speaker. And the story is told, I think this is in Zichron Yaakov from, uh, I believe, I seem to remember, Zichron Yaakov from, uh, you know, uh, what's his name, Lipschitz, Yaakov Ali Lipschitz, the Secretary of Yitzhak Ochanan, who wrote this uh, three-volume, uh, very biased, but very brilliantly written uh, history book, and a wonderful Hebrew. And he says that each one, you know, uh, was uh, the yeshiva guys in, in their classic Litvish yeshiva style, uh, try to rake them over the coals. So Rabbi Yitzhak Ochanan, who was, not, who was a young man at the time, was asked to give a shear. And they're ready to hock him to bits, you know what I mean? And of course, as soon as he opened the mouth, whatever he spoke about, they jumped on him, as was the style. And uh, try to tear him to bits, and somehow or other he made it through the shear. You know, as many he says, the toast here, they all, that's the wrong way to toast, you know, all screaming and yelling. And so, so it's a little bit like the British House of Commons, and uh, or my show. <laughs> and they, uh, once he made it through, so people say, guess, wow, you know, he was able to live a shear and uh, fend off all the kashas. He's a real gong. And I think the Nachos David begged off. I think he was an old man, if I remember the story correctly. He didn't have to do it. But the Mashkiach, the, the, excuse me, the Magid, who was a renowned Magid, he was asked, it was demanded that he should speak on Shabbos. And he agreed, you know, see, to a Shmuz on Shabbos, to the Bnei Sheba. And, you know, the tension was building. Uh, what's he going to say? Is he going to favor the Orioles? Or is he going to favor the Yankees? You know what I mean? Will he be inclined to the base Levy side or to the other side? And the famous story is, the Magad got up and he said, Hind is Parsha Vayeshev, which it wasn't. He said, now it's Vayeshev. Actually, it was the summer. So everybody in Chabra, what do you mean it's Parsha Vayeshev? Of course, that's a speaker's trick, get it? Parsha uh, Vayeshev. And he said, let me explain. I am a Magad. And therefore, my job is, every week, to go and look at the Parsha Shabuah and use it for Musar Hasko, using my homiletical skills. So, usually when we go through Breshis, it's not so hard. When I come to Parshish Breshis, I'm in favor of uh, Adam, and I'm against the, the Nachash, for example. Uh, and when you get to Noach, I'm in favor of Noach, and I'm against the Dor Hamabel. When you get, I'm, I'm in favor of Avram, and I'm against, I don't know, you know, Kardar Lomer or Nimrod. I'm in favor of, uh, you know, Yitzchak, and I'm against, uh, you know, uh, uh, Yishmael. Eventually, I'm a, I'm a favor of Yaakov. I'm against Esau. This carries you through the parshas. As I come to the parshas of Yeshua, but when I come to parshas of Yeshua, what am I supposed to do? Both the brothers and Yosef are big tzaddikim. So I'm always stuck. You know, I can't uh, give a good horn to the parsha because I can't say who's the good guys and who's the bad guys. Everybody's a tzaddik. And I believe, if I remember correctly, then he sat down. 
And everybody said, oops, very good. Meaning, I can't speak in favor of the Beis Alevi. I can't speak in favor of the Nitziv. They're both Sadiqim, Gaonim, and all the rest. That was the meaning behind it. So that's the usual firm approach. However, there are people, who, there are perpetrators over here, and there are victims. Maybe Yosef brought it on by his behavior. Could be, you know, could be. But on the other hand, uh, they tried to kill him. Uh, I remind you, it says, So they picked up the brothers from a pit full of serpents and snakes. So uh, he should have been killed. Moreover, uh, there's this big uh, problem in the story that no one has a good answer for. Uh, I know the different approaches. And that is simply, how come nobody communicated over all these years? Yosef was away for decades, and um, there was no attempt by him when he was a big macher in Egypt to send messages back to Israel, I'm alive. Uh, Bishlim, when he was a prisoner in a, in a dungeon or something, all right, maybe. Maybe when he was in the house of Potiphar, although I don't hear that either. A guy who was in charge of all the affairs of Potiphar's house, right? Uh, he ran the whole show to the master's eminent satisfaction. If he wanted to, he could have smuggled a letter out, somebody to go back to Canaan. After all, it's nearby. Egypt and Canaan is nearby. He didn't try to do it. And uh, the brothers didn't seek after him. It's a, cra- it's, it's a hard thing to understand. Okay? Uh, and if you go by the Chazal, they say Yitzhak was still alive, but Yitzhak kept his mouth shut. That also makes even no more sense. Once you have to go extremely Midrashic over here and say they conveyed a, a basin and they put it silent, that shows you the shot. It's very hard to defend. Uh, and what does it mean the brothers donned him as a, as a basin? You can't don somebody if you're in a Gebedover. Uh, you know, you can take, if I think you're out to kill me, I can take you to a based in. Okay? Uh, I can't be the based in. <laughs> uh, that's assuming that they had such things at that time. So the story is wild and crazy in many levels. But we see Yosef doesn't even try to get back to, with, with, with the father. Why? So I was thinking about this year, and I'm not sure. Whatever I'm saying is a speculation, obviously. But the parsha is, uh, you know, it's a very profoundly written at a literary level. You see it over and over again. Mm. For example, Yehuda says, Why should we kill him? Let's make some money on this. That's a disgusting way to talk, isn't it? Let's turn this into a prophet. Rashi said, right? Let's turn it into a prophet. Uh, Uncle says, let's get some moment out of this. Uh, really? This this what you're thinking? Um, unless you want to defend it and say he was appealing to their mercenary interests, and that's what he's trying to save him. But then it makes them look bad. Yeah? You tell me that the other Shvatim were all into money. Oh, we're going to kill him. Oh, no. We can turn this into 100 bucks. That'll be, uh, you know, $2.50 for each of us. Oh, well, why, why waste a good uh, profit a sum for a slave to the salt mines in Egypt? That's not a good shot either. So what's going on over here? As best as I can tell, we have quite a human story, which I don't think is usually pursued. Although it does emerge from the brilliant accounting of the tale that you and I know over the course of the narrative, which extends, as we know, Parshas Vayeshev, and then Mikhez and Vayigash, even Vayichi, actually. Uh, Selzachvar, 
Yosef goes, and the brothers jump him and throw him in a pit. And uh, and they basically kill him, or at least send him to Egypt, where he'll never be heard from again. Because there's no question that they didn't want him to come with a big mouth and talk. So if they're selling, right? I mean, that'd be a nightmare. If they're selling him to Egypt, they're taking a big chance. So they must have sold him, as far as I can tell, for salt mines. You understand? In other words, for a death slavery. Uh, there's hard labor, there's light labor. They're not going to sell him. If they knew he would end up being bought by Potiphar, uh, you know, they wouldn't have done it. Because then he'll be what you call a light slave and uh, in a high position. See, people make the mistake. We modern people, we think of slavery like the Negro slavery in the South, which was all very low in manual labor. Uh, you didn't have black people being put in charge of estates and things like this in the American South because it was a racist system. It's based on color of the skin. And they're very careful to preserve what they call the color line. And anybody who's black, by definition, is going to be given a bad, low job. But in the ancient world, it wasn't like that. White people enslaved other white people. Black people enslaved other black people. The, the race didn't matter. Slavery was just part of life. When you, when you had wars, you had other things like that. And there was slavery out there. Uh, and in that situation, I own you. Let's say I bought you. I own you. Well, if you have a good head... I'm not going to waste you working in a cotton field. I'm going to put you in charge of some company to run. And because you're my slave, I'll get the profits. Uh, I'm reminded of the famous story in the letter of Aristius to Philocrates, which is a classic account in the Pseudepigrapha of the translation of the Septuagint. Uh, in the Chazal, they say that the writing of the Septuagint was a negative phenomenon, and they made it into a fast day. However, there are ancient writings from that time or more or less that time, the Apocrypha and Pseudepigrapha, in which he said, that was a positive event. That's written from a different non-Chazal point of view. It's a Greek uh, book. And the most interesting part that I want to bring to your attention is that in that book it says that there were 100,000 slaves in Egypt. This is because at the very beginning of the Bayashini period, more or less, or at least the beginning of the Greek period, here we are in Hanukkah, the beginning of the Greek period, way before Hanukkah happened, uh, and Alexander the Great, and when he died, it was a machlokas among the generals who should take over the empire. And they all fought each other. And by the, by the time the dust settled, the territory that you and I call Eretz Yisrael fell to the Ptolemies, the dynasty that ruled Egypt. This is a Macedonian generals who took over Egypt and set up a dynasty that lasted for hundreds of years. Ptolemy I, Ptolemy II, Cleopatra, and so forth. And when one of the things that happened was, in the course of these wars, Ptolemy, who was fighting other Greek generals, Macedonian generals, uh, made a surprise attack on Yerushalayim, stormed and captured the place, and took 100,000 Jews as slaves back to Egypt. There are some of Farshim who learned, if you read the Tochacha closely, that there are references to that. And then they were working on the salt mines. It was a bummer. For X number of years. And then Ptolemy the first died. And he was succeeded by his son, Ptolemy II. And Ptolemy II, we're told, said like this, what a waste of a good Jew. Uh, these guys are good in business. They can build up the commerce. What do you got them, well, you know, working in the salt mines, working in the banana fields, uh, you know, uh, schlepping uh, lumber. That's a waste of a good Jew. In other words, he was not a liberal, but he was economically smart. And what he did was he purchased Although he was loaded, 
he went to all the owners of the 100,000 Jewish slaves, or whoever was left, and he bought them. So he didn't exact, and, and he let them free. In other words, he didn't emancipate the slaves like you had in the United States with an Emancipation Proclamation, which says, I hereby declare you free, and the master doesn't get any money. He didn't want to make a whole tower around. And so what he did was, he said, I'll buy everybody fair and square. Suppose Abraham Lincoln, I'm making this up. Suppose Abraham Lincoln said, we're going to raise $10 billion. We're going to pay every white guy in the South a lot more than the slave is worth. And that way we'll free all the slaves. We'll end the whole uh, constant business of slavery. Uh, we would have skipped the Civil War. <laughs> right? We would have skipped the Civil War. So, because uh, everybody has a price. Slavery is about economics, right? And so what happened was he took these 100,000 Jews. And then he said like this. You know, I bought you, and now I'm leaving you free in Egypt. Now don't now go Jew it up. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Go and make business, and they did. Not all of them, of course, but a fair number, and they ended up uh, becoming rich and contributing tremendously to the Egyptian economy. That's the story that's in the book of a. That's not a, that's a story written twenty five hundred years ago, approximately. Okay, or to be more exact, twenty one, twenty two hundred years ago. Uh, so my point is. They used to have slavery of all kinds, and a smart guy will say, "This guy's a this slave is clever. I'm not going to make him work in the salt mines. I'll, you know, give him a job, as a uh, import. Uh, he'll run the estate of Potiphar." Now, there's no question in my mind when the brothers sold him, Orchas uh, Yishmaelim, the idea was they'll sell him for a uh, salt mine slave, and uh, probably they shut him up too, and uh, this was the plan. Because Yosef was under Ashkocha Pratis, so he ended up being bought by Potiphar. There's a whole matter why Potiphar did it, and things like this. And it could be that Potiphar had like gay designs on him. A lot of different interpretations of what happened. But he ended up, instead of being a slave working himself literally to death in a short time, he ended up, as you know, being the assistant to the prime minister. And eventually, Mamish, the assistant to the prime minister, and he ran the whole show. So believe you me, the brothers never calculated that this guy, because they're lying to the father. Remember, they said he, they, he died. Tarof Taraf Yosef, Chayorachalosu. They didn't figure Yosef was going to come back and, and re-haunt them. You see? I mean, that's their worst nightmare. They kill Yosef, quote-unquote, and then he shows up a month later and said, the brothers tried to kill me. What would Yaakov say then? You see? What would Yaakov say then? So it must be that if he didn't die in the pit, they figured he'll die as a slave. You and I know, Jabon Shalom had other ideas in mind. And instead, Yosef had a, a, a ladder. It took him 12 years. It had a ladder to success, first as the head of the household for Potiphar, Sar HaTabachim, Rabba Tabachim, and eventually with the butler and the baker until he becomes viceroy. No one counted on that. And it, let's face it, it's a highly improbable story, which is precisely why it's in the Chumash, to show you the Hashgacha protest that Yosef got. Fine, let it be. Let it be. Why didn't Yosef then, if he occupies such a position, I'm talking about a year or so, or two years, not long after he was in Egypt. Why didn't he say, what the heck just happened to me? You know, my brothers went crazy. They're a bunch of murderers or would-be murderers or something like that. And, uh, you know, I'm going to tell my father. After all, Yosef back when he was in Canaan, he had no hesitation telling the father, of Averis that the brothers were doing. Well, this one makes the others look like nothing. What a Mizalzum Bnei I mean, big deal. You know, Ben Pakua. 
There they mamish threw me in a pit. They tried to murder me, and when that didn't work, they sold me for you know to to die from harsh labor. And Yosef doesn't do that. You got to admit, it's like a question that stares in the face. Uh, and uh, so what, what? What you know? What kind of good explanations are there? Uh, now, the only thing I can think of is that Yosef must have concluded the father's part of it. They're all out to kill him. It's a family plot. Yaakov did it too. Why do I say that? Now, of course, it wasn't true, but I'm just saying, why do I say that? Uh, it says, There was unbelievable tension in the house. Even Yaakov said, The father knew that this is a big turn off the way he's talking. Everybody's going to bow down to you. Uh, so you could cut it with a knife. So they hate him. And by the way, everybody hates a brother who's a snitch. You know, I mean, I would hate a brother who's a snitch on me. You can't help it. Who nar? They hated it. And Yaakov says, I don't know where your brothers are. <laughs> right? Go find your brothers. Really? And, you know, and at night? Uh, and he's sending them alone? Uh, and the brothers jump him and throw him in a pit? It sounds like the father set him up. Now, I know it's crazy. Not if you're Yosef. And as far as he knows, the father sent him, you know, to a hostile camp and uh, made no inquiries after him afterwards. I don't think he knew that they said he was eaten by an animal. And uh, now he's in Egypt and my whole family, you know, is against me. Like it says in the Tehillim, uh, His mother was dead. The father, he thought, was on his side. But if he sent him to this doom, it sounds like the father was there. This, I think, now I could be totally wrong. I'm just speculating. I'll be shot. That's what it seems to me. They conclude the father was part of the whole deal. You and I know, because that's why the story is written so brilliantly. We can see it from the psychology of Yosef on the one hand, and then we can also see it from the psychology of the brothers. And the story is so fantastic because it also goes on to tell, it's really wonderful, it's a terrible story, but it's a wonderful telling of the story. Uh, what happens the day after? In other words, they agreed to lie to the father. As we all know, they shech the goat and all that stuff, take the blood. And they say, Ksonis Yosef, Tarf Tarf Yosef. The Rambam says, remember saying this in the Murnavuchim, that the reason we have a sawyer for a, in the Torah, for a chattas at a zebra, I think, is that right? Something like that. Sin offering is because the original sin was the sale of Joseph. That's like the original sin of Jewish people. It's the big sin against Achtas. So the brothers all say, let's get this straight. We're going to kill him or eventually sell him. Uh, he'll disappear from our lives. I told you before, if they sell him, they'll figure that the slave masters in Egypt will do the killing for him. Uh, for them, they'll tell the father, he'll grieve for a while, and then he'll get over it. After all, he has 12 kids, now I have 11. You know? It's not like he had no children. And life will move on. Uh, this is what they persuaded themselves. But of course, they didn't, they couldn't see two things. 
It's a wonderful story. Number one, the father would never get over it. See, I will die in pain. Now, you tell me. We're talking about the Shvatim over here. Uh, let's say they were real angry at Yosef and they lost their temper. I get it. And they made a mistake. I get it. But they weren't bad children. And so what was it like for them for the next years to see Yaakov all the time in Avelos? He just never got over it. Uh, it's got to eat their kishkas. I repeat, it's uh, 12 years, 15 years, whatever. It's a long time. So you get to, you know, Vayigash and, and Yosef revealing himself to the brothers. So Yaakov was in exquisite pain. And you know, this is a lie. This is the problem with a lie. You can't, once you're committed to the lie, you can't back off. They lie to the father. They said, Torah of Torah of Yosef. And when they're going to say, well, really, it wasn't true. We sold him for a slave. Well, what? And so it, it's this is a divine justice twisting the knife in their belly, in their back. Years go by, and they have to see the tsar caused by the father. It's it's very interesting to me. You understand? And uh, boy, they paid a price. So this was not a murder or a kidnapping that got away with the way they planned it. Now, you see, if they would have been Rashaim and psychological, like the Arab terrorists, you kill a brother today and then you have breakfast tomorrow. You know what I mean? It's like the guys who work for the mafia. It's just a job. They go around murdering people as garnished. But these people, Reuben, Shimon, Levi, Yehuda, they weren't that tight. They just built themselves into a rage over the way Yosef, you know, conduct himself towards them. But they never thought through. It's clear to me. What will be tomorrow? What will be on the father? They clearly thought that Yaakov would get over it, and Yaakov never got over it. That's one thing. Number two, they never got over it. Because we all know that, uh, let's put it this way, tension immediately builds among the brothers. I told you, Yehuda said, Yehuda said, let's make some money on this deal. Right? And they do. How did they feel? So let me put it this way. Let's say they sold him. How much did they say they sold him for him? They says there was a Anoshim Midian of Sochrim, Vayelo, Vayim Kuris Yosef. I mean, I forget how much, right? Was it twenty shekels or something like that? Let me, uh, let me, let me. This is Kadai for me to find out. It says Vayim Kuris Yosef, Esrim Kosef, right? So let's say Esrim Kosef was. I mean, let's put it this way: it's not a billion dollars. So you tell me. I want you to put the scene. It's, uh, let's see, it's 10 brothers, because there was 12 altogether, and Benyama was not there. And let's say Reuben was not there, so it's nine brothers. It's nine brothers, 20 pieces of silver. Uh, you know, nobody gets a full piece of silver. Uh, what did they do with that money after they see Yosef going away? <laughs> do you think they spent the money? I bet you they threw it away. You understand? That itself is like out damn spot. And... Uh, whose idea was to have the money? Uh, Yehuda. Vayered Yehuda Meisachov. I think the Chazal or somebody, one of them forced him to say, Yehuda went down to Madrega. Well, was, Yehuda no longer looks good because if this is what he led to. Um, now, many try to spin it, including Yaakov later on, and say, well, you saved him from being killed. Uh, but many others say, you know, this was my Shah or whoever, that, you know, this was not a good thing. And it's really weird to me because Yehuda seems to have been the biggest Talmud Chacham. 
they say Bessie Huda, Shalch Lafon of Goshna, you know, he sent Yeshua Huda later on in Parshavigash, you know this, to be a Rosh Hashiva to set up a base opener or whatever. So here's the big Talmud Chacham, who now, after the sale of Joseph, leaves the family, and he goes to a Geisha neighborhood and he lives with Geisha friends. Canaanites, Canaanim of all sorts of things, uh, 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 whatever. Isn't that the story? Right? And uh, and he marries a, a Shiks over there, isn't that right? But yet, he turned away to an Adulamite, no, it's a guy. And Vayar, Sham Yehudi, Bas Ish Kanani, Shmo Shua, he married a Geisha girl, right? Uh, if she was a Canaanite, it's Mamash a bummer because it's a cursed race. And if she's just a merchant like someone to say, Zechit Nishkud, you know. And then comes the whole story of Tamar, which ends up with him being embarrassed on the money, because, publicly embarrassed on the money, because he thought she's his own, and he gave her, remember, the collateral, he didn't have, he didn't have cash on him, and she said, give me Chosemis Apsilom Ma'ela. He gave her his credit card and his driver's license. It was this Chosemis, so he really put himself out there, and later on, as we all knew the story, you know, it was Tamar, so she went away, and then he said, Oy vey, some Zona has my um, driver's license, and this is going to be unbelievable humidity. Penyil Lavaz. Didn't they say to the other guy? He says, let's get out of here because we're going to be humiliated. And so the, the money's coming back to haunt him, you might say. At least that's how I see the juxtaposition. It must be some Chazal, because the Mita Kenegamita is pretty obvious. And usually there's a Chazal when there's a Mita Kenegamita on, on this. I don't remember the Medish Rabbah, but I'm sure other Midrashim must go and they have to. Now, so you have the Yehuda problem, but you also have that the brothers never get over it. Because later on, as we know the story in Mikates, when things start to go bad, they say, it's our problem, I think that's how it goes. Which means, they're haunted now with the guilt, that has been within them all the time, and they see the punishment by the Viceroy of Egypt, of course they don't know it's Yosef, as a punishment for their guilt. So you see, they didn't... You, I thought you told me that they donned him for a rodef, and they made a bezdin and all the rest of it, and therefore they were 100% with it. If you ask a from Rebbe somewhere else, what they did was 100% Yosher, Lafitte Daitam. Right? Lafitte Daitam. The 100% was correct. They donned him for a rodef, and uh, in their way of thinking, he deserved it, and so on and so forth. Really? Then why'd they feel uh, guilty? Now, you could be really on me and say, well, they never said we feel bad for you know, killing him or sending a slave, they just feel bad. The Achzorius. That, to me, is splitting hairs. I think they're saying, like, yes, we did a terrible thing, and now, you know, now it's coming down upon us. And uh, even Yehuda says, I'm sorry, Reuben says, didn't I tell you, I'll So you see, the first time of trouble, the white elephant on the table is there. So all those years, after Yosef departed the scene and went as a slave to Egypt, which I tell you, they didn't think he's coming back. Uh, what was it like when they had dinner on Friday night, all of them together, on Shabbos or Yontav with the family? What is the one subject they cannot talk about? You can talk about Trump. You can talk about Biden. You can talk about the economy. You can talk about Corona. You can talk about everyone. Don't mention the word Yosef. <laughs> right? Because that's a, a scary subject. Don't mention, and, and it's on everybody's mind. And the guilt is, is there, and the father is at the head of the table crying. 
Yaakov Avinu never had again a nice Shabbos. That's what that means, right? Uh, he he created Albini Avil Sholal, going down to a horrible and and depressed death. Uh, and so you see, in a brilliant way, the workings of a crime when you're not a criminal, <laughs> right? Uh, if you're a pathological criminal, you can do, uh, you know, and move on, and it doesn't bother you, because that means you're, you're weird. If you're a person with a conscience, you did a terrible crime, especially against a, a sibling, uh, and you're a normal person, the guilt will never leave you. You see? That, to me, is such an interesting part of the whole story, and uh, it's really bothering them. Now, maybe they're conflicted. I don't know. I wasn't there. Maybe on the one hand, they felt he was a danger to us. On the other hand, they felt, over we did the wrong thing. Probably from the way the father reacted, they must have said we did the wrong thing. That's what I think. I could be wrong, of course, but, you know, that's the way the story seems to play out to me. It's a, it's a want from the, from the story perspective. You know, it's so deep and it has so much of this in there. And, you know, you don't know who's right and who's wrong. Who did Sadiq? Who did Rishon? The only um, problem with this neat shot is the following. Uh, later on, not so far later on, when she makes a pass at him, the wife of Patifar, we all know he didn't do it because Nizdam lo demustyuk nushalavi. I don't say that's the Pashib shot. The Pashib shot is that Yosef said no. <laughs> okay? Uh, uh, let's take ourselves away from the matters for a second. He was working there. She, you know, summoned him, seduced him in the house, or she waited till he was alone in the house. She attacked him, and he ran away. Right? The shot is he was a noble person. He wasn't into that kind of behavior. And Gamarno, right? And she was angry at him, and so on and so forth. Chazal, of course, say, they want to learn over there that, you know, he was sorely tempted, which is 100% makes sense. I mean, you know, from a human being perspective, she was probably something, and uh, he, and he was, uh, you know, tall, dark, handsome, and young, and though she was a powerful temptation, and um, the Chazal say, that's why they call him Yosef Atzadik, by the way. The reason they call him Yosef Atzadik is because he was able to, uh, what's the right word, withstand this powerful temptation, which the Chazal describe in extremely graphic terms, I will not do that, and uh, because he, you know, did that, which was almost, almost superhuman, so uh, he became Yosef Atzadik. Uh But, the, you know, Pashim Shadis, he, he just said no. Now, how was he able to overcome the unbelievable temptation? This Domino Demustiuk Nishalavif. That, to me, is very interesting, because uh, if you're seeing your father's image, why don't you write back home to him? So, again, it's uh, a tickle, a uh, 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 tug of war in his mind. If I was 20 years old or 18 years old, what they call high school approach, then you say it's either white or black. Either you held his father with a sodic or his father was complicit. And if he held his father was complicit, then he wouldn't have to must the shalaviv. On the other hand, if his father was a sodic, then he would have written back to him. But I'm older than that. And I know you can have these conflicting opinions in your mind. You don't know which is which. And you're all confused, especially in the situation he always found himself. And it could be both. Right? He he saw his father's presence and whatever the father did in his mind, I cannot behave in an unworthy fashion. Yeah? I cannot do that.
This is, to my mind, the reason, the source, or the reason behind Yisker. You know, what do you have the Yisker prayers for? Um, in Shul. Now, they're from the Middle Ages. But what do you have, the, you know, for the, uh, the, what do you call the martyrs from the Crusades? And then it has morphed. But the idea of Yisker is, if you remember the departed one, and let's say, for example, your departed one was a tzaddik. So then, the memory of that person, let's say, I'm just making this up, let's say your grandfather was a famous tzaddik, big rabbi, rashiva, tzaddik, whatever. Uh, okay. So then you say, I want to evoke his memory so that when I find myself in temptation situations in life to do something wrong, the fact that I'll say, I can't do it, I'm, I'm so-and-so's grandson, I'm so-and-so's nephew, or something like that, and that'll give me a chizuk against the Yitzhahar. Well, that's a logical explanation of what happened. But if you have the situation, the feelings that Yosef had, it's very weird. I tell you again, many years passed by, including when he becomes the viceroy of Egypt, and nothing, he doesn't, uh, you know, say a single word about the father. Uh, in my mind, had he known the father was suffering tsar, uh, I don't. Th- I think he would have told him. It can only mean some level. He must have thought the father was complicit, and you know this is this is a deck of cards he's been dealt with by life. This, this is ashkacha, this is ashkacha practice, which of course this whole uh, false understanding of what's happening is shattered eventually in Parshas Miketz and, Vay- and Vayigash rather. You know, and then when they meet, the father says, "Amusa Paul Achri Rosis Banecho." So then those things sort of clear, cleared up. But in this week's Parsha, it's not cleared up. And so we have uh, a psychological story of profound depth, which I think is often skipped because we prefer to go for the easy chazals, you know, the ones that just sort of like, uh, what's the right way, uh, smooth out the rough edges. To me, at least at this point in my life, the rough edges are the most interesting part of the story, right? And they're the most real because I can see people, you know, acting like that. And, uh, you know, uh, when you do an Avera, you get deep into it and you can't get yourself out. They put him in a hole. No, they didn't. They put themselves in a hole. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? They threw him into a pit with Nasha Nakravim. Actually, they threw themselves in a pit with Nasha Nakravim because the Nechashim and Nakravim is their own lies and the, and, and the Lush and Hara. And they cannot get out. And a lot of times when you do an Avera, especially against someone else, you think you're in charge, but by the time it's over... Davir is in charge of you. Davir is in charge of you. And I think that, to me, is the most interesting aspect to consider from the very well-known Yosef story for us this year. At least that's uh, what I have in mind this time. And with that, I wish you a good job. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.